So it's our series, thinking about, as I said this morning, and I really want to underline this, the most practical topic that you'll ever think about. Who is Jesus? Um, when you come to the stage where, oh, sorry, there we go. When you come to the stage where you're up against it, uh, the most practical truth of all that will hold you together is absolute conviction that Jesus Christ is God. It's the foundation of everything. So what we're doing over the five Sunday evenings is we're looking at five lines of evidence that lead you to the inescapable conclusion that Jesus is God. And we've used a little memory device of hands. So we've already thought about the fact that Jesus is given the honors that are due to God alone. They sit perfectly with Jesus because he is God. And then the last time we thought about the attributes that Jesus possesses. He possesses the attributes of God. And we saw that how in the incarnation, all the attributes of God were fully possessed. They were not fully expressed at all times through the self-limiting that the Son of God emplaced upon himself in his time on earth. Now, we're coming tonight then to think about the names that he bears. So you're going to go out in half an hour's time or whatever to uh, having thought about the names of the Son of God. Uh, let me just begin with a little bit of clarification. Everyone, I'm sure, understands what I mean when I say that Jesus possesses a vast number of names in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. But strictly speaking, I suppose we should maybe say he possesses a range of titles. For example, Savior, uh, the Good Shepherd, the Word of God. Those are titles that he bears. The personal name of the Son of God is, of course, Jesus, this faithful friend that we have, this Savior. So what we're going to do together in our time tonight, first of all, we're going to consider the name Jesus itself and see that it designates Jesus as divine, carrying divine authority. And after we've done that, I'm just going to select two of the titles from the many, many, many titles that Jesus has given in the Word of God, just take two of them, which will just show you beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ is God. So here's our starting point. Let's, before even Jesus was born, the angel comes to Joseph. And in Matthew 1:21, the angel says this about Mary. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
And the name Jesus is the most fitting name ever given because the name Jesus itself means the Lord is salvation. Or, older language, Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves. That's what the very name itself means. So it is quite legitimate to hear what the angel said to Joseph as you are to give him the name, the Lord is salvation because he will save his people from their sins. You see, for centuries, devout Jewish parents would have named their male child Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, because it was an expression of their faith and hope in God, their Savior. Just like all the Hebrew names, they, they said something about God. They reflected the faith of the people in their God. And to call the male child Jesus was declaring the Lord is salvation. But what the angel is stating in this appearance to, Mary, to Joseph is that this child that is going to be born of Mary, it's now no longer just aspiration or just some declaration that God is Savior. It's now that this is God in action. He has now come to accomplish the salvation of his people. That's the significance of giving him the name Jesus. And that name Jesus as we're going to see, which is so often on the lips of people as a swear word. That name is highly exalted and is placed on the same level as God's own name. The personal name given to the Son of God who became man is the very name of God himself. God come to us as Jesus. And once again, we find ourselves in that highly significant passage of Scripture in Philippians 2, which describes the condescension of Christ, the Son of God, coming and going to the cross and experiencing death. But then Paul says this, now listen out for where we're going with the name. God exalted him, that is Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This name of Jesus that the Son of God took in the incarnation when he became one with humanity, that he bore as he went to the cross itself and entered into death to pay the price of our sins, that name, along with Jesus himself, has been exalted to the highest Heights. It's on a par with God's own name. And what we find then in the New Testament 
is the evidence that this name of Jesus that was despised, remember the cross, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, with such scorn and derision, the humiliation of that, the abasement of the name of Jesus. It's now exalted. And we see in the New Testament, as I say, the evidence that the name of Jesus is exalted. There is divine power and authority in that name. In Acts chapter 3, we read about Peter and John and the healing of the lame man. Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. And then later on, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is in Jesus' name. And the faith that comes through him that has given complete healing to him, as you now can see. Hence the authorities clamp down and say, you will not preach or teach any longer in the name of Jesus. They despise the fact that the name of Jesus has been exalted and contains divine authority. But whether it's overcoming the damage of sin evidenced through healings, or the defeat of Satan, demonstrated through exorcisms, the name of Jesus carries divine authority. When, jo when Paul is being followed and hounded by the girl with the pythonic spirit in Acts chapter 16, he commands the spirit to come out of her in the name of Jesus. That name carries divine power and authority. Of course, there is salvation for us in the name of Jesus. Acts 4 verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When the apostles were dragged and beaten because they continued to preach in the name of Jesus, what did they say in Acts 5, 41? What's said about them? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The name of Jesus is worth whatever suffering it brings into our lives because of what that name represents. And finally, we're called upon as believers to do everything in the name of Jesus. Colossians 3 verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do. Do you know what's very interesting? I've got mine in the Bible. There's a text, a biblical text on our rota of responsibilities. Do you know what it is? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Isn't it interesting 
Paul uses the same comprehensive phrase twice. Whatever you do, Christian, do it all in the name of Jesus. Do it all for the glory of God because it's the same thing. It's the same thing to honor the name of Jesus in that way. The name of Jesus is the name by which the Son of God was known when he walked among us and when he died on the cross. And it is the name that he still bears today in his exaltation. And that name carries all the authority of God within it. Can I say again, folks, what a serious thing it is to take that name in vain. Because what we're doing is we're taking the name that God took to himself for our salvation and we're substituting it for a curse word. We're bringing it down to that level. I honestly believe that people will spend eternity aware of the name that has been highly exalted that they put in the gutter. I honestly believe that because they're making little of what God did to provide salvation for us. There's no more serious thing you'll say with your mouth than bringing the name of Jesus down because it is highly exalted. But we've got to go further. <clears throat> we've got to think about some of those titles that Jesus possesses that are his by right, because these, these will show us who Jesus is. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to take just two of the titles that are given to Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross, who rose again, who ascended to heaven, who is seated at the right hand of God right now, who is coming again in power and glory. And there's the first one. Jesus is Lord. The most basic Christian confession that there is. Three words. Jesus is Lord. And we're dulled to the significance of that title because we're so used to calling him Lord. And we can miss the revolutionary significance of those early followers of Jesus coming from their Jewish background to call Jesus Lord, someone who had walked alongside them, who they'd eaten with, who they'd hailed, and yet they call him Lord. And what you find is in their early days of their acquaintance with Jesus, they call him Lord, and it is very heavy in the sense of being a term of respect. We'll see this later on when we go a little bit deeper into what the word means. But it's that term of respect, like master or sir. But as they progress, as they spend time with Jesus, they realize that he is Lord in the foolish sense of that term. So what we're going to do is we need to do a little bit of work here. Um, you'll wonder what that is possibly, but the personal name of God in the Old Testament. You open your Bible randomly in the Old Testament. 
there are 6,823 references to Lord. L-O-R-D, block capitals. Block capitals, okay? That's because that is the name, the personal name of God used to be said to be Jehovah. Hence, we have our hymns from that time with Jehovah and all the names. Jehovah Jireh was quoted this morning. Um, you know, the Lord will provide. They've come to the conclusion that it's better. Yahweh would be a better pronunciation. The Jews did not pronounce the name of God. It was so revered in that way. But that's the name of God in the Old Testament. God as he is revealed before the coming of Christ in the incarnation. Now, when the New Testament was written, it was written in the Greek language, okay? And the Greek word for Lord is kurios. Kurios. And that word, that's a very versatile term because at the shallow end, it can mean Lord in the sense of master or sir, as the disciples would have spoken of Jesus at the start. But it also is a good enough term for the direct equivalent of the Lord in the full sense of possessing deity. Now, in case that sounds, you know, sort of very technical and remote, and what on earth is all that to do with us? We're going to just spend some time doing a few worked examples so you see the significance of Jesus bearing the title Lord, what that actually means. So here's our first worked example, and I really recommend that you look at this in the Scriptures. Actually, I could have taken this from any one of the four Gospels, because all the four Gospels talk about the role of John the Baptist as Jesus's forerunner. And what happens is the gospel writer, Matthew, in the case that we're looking at, he quotes the Old Testament to explain the ministry of John the Baptist. This is what he says, referring to John the Baptist. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, Matthew 3, verse 3. Okay? Now, he's going to quote the Old Testament. What is the, the scripture that's quoted? A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now, what do you notice as you read Isaiah in your Old Testament? How is the word Lord presented? Block capitals. This is the name of Yahweh. Prepare the way of the Lord. And what is Matthew saying and the other gospel writers saying? John the Baptist went before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. He was his forerunner. So who is Jesus? He is none other than Yahweh come in human form. He is the Lord. When we come to Acts chapter 2, you read about that monumental event, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the followers of Jesus of Nazareth, 
who's just been crucified, but has been raised and has returned to heaven. So Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, he explains to the crowd the significance of what they're seeing, the evidence of the Spirit having been poured out. And this is what he says in Acts 2.34. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, that is Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Conclusion, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. God has given definitive proof that this is who Jesus is. He has reversed your verdict. You said Jesus was a criminal and a blasphemer. Well, God has shown you that's completely wrong because the exalted Jesus has received the Holy Spirit from the Father to pour out that promised salvation in the Old Testament. It's happened. Why has it happened? Because Jesus is being demonstrated. Jesus, who was crucified, is being demonstrated to be what he always was, Lord and Messiah. Third example. And this is where this gets very practical in terms of our salvation. I want you to turn to Romans 10. A good old gospel verse. Romans 10 verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Let's read on. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32 in the Old Testament. What do you notice when you read Joel 2, 32? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, block capitals, Yahweh, Jehovah, anyone who calls on his name will be saved. Paul says in Romans, you call on the name of Jesus and you'll be saved. Jesus is Yahweh come in the flesh. That conclusion is inescapable. One final one. I could have taken a lot of ones. A good verse that we use when it comes to witnessing. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's listen to Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Notice the quotation marks now. Do not fear their threats, 
do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Okay? Do you know what Paul's doing there? Peter's doing there? He's quoting Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet. Go to Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13. Here are the resonances to what we've just read. Isaiah 8, verse 12 and 13. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Ring bells. And do not dread it. Now listen. The Lord, block capitals, the Lord Almighty is the one you're to regard as holy. He is the one you're to fear. He is the one you're to dread. What does Peter say? Don't fear what they fear, but you set apart in your hearts Christ as Lord. Sanctify him in your hearts. It's the idea of declare his, his holiness. Peter applies what is said of Yahweh in the Old Testament to Jesus in the New Testament. Again and again, we see that Jesus bears the name of God. One other title. And as I say, I could have selected any number. Alpha and Omega. You know that Alpha and Omega, it's the equivalent of A to Z. It's the first and last letter of the uh, Greek language. But let's listen to a couple of uh, familiar descriptions of God in the Old Testament. Pre his revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 44, verse 6. I am the first and the last. It repeats that in Isaiah 48, verse 12. You get the point. I'm the first and the last. I am the eternal one. So come to the New Testament. Go to the book of Revelation. The first chapter. Verse 8 of Revelation chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God says, I am the Eternal One. I do not dwell in time. I am self-existent. So God repeats that description of himself in the New Testament, okay? But... Go to verse 17 of the same chapter. When I saw him, who's him? Well, look above the vision of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one who I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am the first and the last. Go to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 and 13. Who's speaking? Look, 
I am coming soon. Who's speaking? Who's speaking? Jesus. I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The cults hate this section. And if there's any doubt, go to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel. That's who this is. Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus bears the titles that are reserved for God alone. That title cannot be given to anyone else. It's unique to God. Now, if we'd have had time, we could have looked at a whole variety of names, titles, where Jesus says he is the I am. It's the same idea that he didn't just exist before Abraham. He exists in a different category to to Abraham. He's self-existent. He's uncreated. He is the word of God, God's self-expression. That's who Jesus is. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. Whatever authority you can think of, he's over it, as God is over it. Titus will be seeing it in chapter 2. We're waiting for the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. One person, the great God. It was referred to this morning. Where does John's gospel land? With Thomas, the doubter, falling on his knees and saying to Jesus, my Lord and my God. That's a Jew speaking, folks. That's a Jew speaking, saying to a man standing before him, my Lord and my God. That can only mean one thing. In Romans 9 verse 5, Paul directly says he he is God over all. So all those titles are there. This is a third line of evidence showing us that Jesus can be none other than God himself. He can be none other. This is the most practical thing any of us will ever wrestle with, folks. If you are not a Christian... Jesus is not someone who offers you a few tips on a better life. He's not someone who just did a noble thing in the past. This is God come to us for the purposes of salvation. And he is exalted. We want to put Jesus in his place. We want to recognize his deity. And that is not to put distance between himself and ourselves. But it's to show, to magnify the distance that he came to purchase our salvation. So we want to hold together simultaneously the wonder of who Jesus actually is. He is God. But he's also our savior. And he's our companion through life. 
And he's content to call us his friends, his brothers, and his fellow servants. What a privileged people we are. And what a wonderful God we have. So let's both in our estimation of him, let's get him in his place. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And let's in our lives show Jesus in his place. Not even the worst suffering that we will have to face in this life is to be shunned because he's worthy of it. The name of Jesus is worthy of it. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.